six years ago, in the first week of Lent. So, you know, Lent is that long season before Easter. I woke in the middle of the night with a scripture echoing in my mind. And it wasn't part of a dream. Uh, in, instead, the words had wakened me from a really nice sleep. I, I, I can remember that. So there wasn't, there wasn't some dream bouncing around in my head. There wasn't something else I was coming. It was just these words, just the scripture. You have a reputation for being alive, but are dead. Strengthen what remains. Ooh. Imagine that. I knew roughly where this was from. Knew it was, knew it was one of the seven churches. I didn't at the time know which one. So I got my little light and I checked to see which one. And I, I really wanted to see what else was there. <laughs> what's, what's around there? You might think that this landed harshly, especially in the middle of the night. But you would be wrong. You'd, you'd be surprised. As I've occasionally taught, there is a way to discern the voice of God. When the Spirit brings a word of correction or rebuke or conviction, it comes with gentleness, firm. Firm. This is the voice of God, but gentle. Gentle and bringing with it the assurance of support, the assurance of rescue, the assurance of his commitment, the promise of peace. So there's conviction. There can be really strong rebuke, and yet at the same time, real assurance of peace. On the other hand, evil speaks with a voice of condemnation, of entrapment. This is you and you will never be anything else. Accusation, hopelessness. So when I heard the words, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Strengthen what remains. It was the Lord's comfort that I felt. comfort. So I spent the next several months working out, what, what does this mean? What? what? Because I, at the same time, I had, have had and have full assurance of the Lord's favor for me and of my salvation. So I, I was working out, what does this mean? And since we've come to this passage today, working through the letters, I thought, I've got to, I've got to share this. Um, and so I'll, I will be sharing some of what I came to over those months leading to Easter. Well, the first thing, we, we are in chapter 3. Um, that's of Revelation, where this fifth letter to the churches is. The first thing that we need to be sure to note has been, it's been true of the four previous churches. It's, it's true of the two after. It's true of this one. Jesus loves these people. That's certain. Uh, at the feast yesterday, uh, we heard the wonderful words of this same apostle John as he described the agape love of God. Anyone, 
anyone who knows God, anyone who loves God does so because he first loved us. If there is agape in you, if there is real love in you, it's because God brought it there. And so each of these churches, no matter the message they receive, each of these churches can humbly praise and thank God because he not only knows them, he not only has taken note of them, notice of them, but he sent them a particular word. He has that much care for them that he would send a word to them. Only tremendous love would take that kind of attention. Only tremendous love would take the action of sending a strong message of correction. Because with no love, there's no correction. Carry on. There's no love. You just leave them to their consequences. Were Jesus to have remained silent towards Sardis, he'd be letting them just walk into the darkness of disconnection from him. But they receive a message. They can say thank you. God's love is evident. So anytime, you can bank on this, anytime there's a word of correction from the Lord Jesus, generally or specifically, to you, it's for restoration. That's the purpose. God only speaks to people to restore them. He speaks to his church to bring his people back to life. He clears out boulders so the water of life can flow. He clears the way. He cuts off dead branches so that the tree may survive. So take note. If the Lord speaks rebuke to you, if his word stings you, he cuts so that he may heal. The enemy seeks to maim and destroy you. So with that frame, the church of Sardis, was they were privileged to receive a personal word of rebuke. A personal word from the one who has, he says, who has the seven spirits of God and holds the seven stars. Well, as we've often seen, even in this Revelation series, seven. Seven is the fullness of God. Jesus has the fullness of God, the, the seven spirits of God. All that is God, he is. All that is God, he brings. And holding the seven stars, which he told us in chapter one, are the, the seven ministers of those seven churches. He, he reminds Sardis that each and every church he holds in his hands. They exist by his own power. They exist by his own power. This is one of our declarations today on Christ the King Sunday. Everything exists by his power. He holds them. Time and events, past, this moment, the future, life, breath, all in his hands. This is the one that we're dealing with. This is the one Sardis was dealing with. And somebody like that can't be deceived. That's important for this message. He can't be deceived. These Christians, they are blessed. 
They're blessed to receive a word of insight from the one who holds the stars and holds every church. Well, his message is not a commendation. As we've seen, I know your works. I know how it goes with you. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. There's nothing cryptic about that. <laughs> Kinda, there's no mystery. They had a reputation that didn't match reality. Now, notice there's no mention of a false teaching. That's come up in some of the other churches. There's not a specific false teaching they're falling prey to. There's no mention of gross immoralities. They've not fallen into um, the cultural practices that are given to idolatry and sexuality. It seems instead that they were fairly comfortable. This church was not experiencing persecutions. There's no mention of that. Uh, the coastal cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, each of those was in a different Roman province. And it seems the proconsuls of that other province had begun a persecution, but not here. Sardis was inland. We really don't know what their church life looked like, except to say, we can probably fairly comfortably say that from the outside... To a human observer, it looked like they had it together. They looked good. By all appearances, they were animated. Uh, the, to use common parlance today, they might even have had the nine marks of a healthy church or the five signs that your church is doing well. There are many booklets you can get on this to self-examine. The church consultants had told them, you are ticking all the boxes. You're, you have got it. Um, I guess you could imagine they, they had a nice range of church programs. They had good preaching and good theology. Otherwise, they would not have a reputation of being alive. They had good preaching, good doctrine, steady attendance at worship. Yeah, the, these aren't uh, two Sunday a month churches. These are four Sunday a month churches. Robust small group ministry. 80% participation. Target. <laughs> Amazing youth group. Uh, very committed. Lots of activities. Good games. Good, good games, but even more, not just games, because this was a really good youth group. They actually read the Bible together. This, lots of activity and apparently good feelings abounded. Good feelings. They wouldn't have a reputation for being alive otherwise. They wouldn't have a reputation for having the life of God if there weren't some kinds of evidences to suggest it. Strange. I can remember this plum tree. Beautiful plum tree. Blossoms every spring, sweet-smelling, lovely blossoms, and then fruit, abundant fruit on this tree. And then there was a big storm, high winds, and on one of the low branches, 
the tree, the, the main branch, the tree split. It was rotten, right down the middle, worm-eaten. You never would have known from the outside. And I can remember marveling, how did it produce fruit like that? Worm-eaten and hollowed out, and in a moment it was dead. How is it? Looks can be deceiving. The Lord, the Lord indicates to Sardis that Christians can not only deceive the outside by appearances, but can be self-deceived. If we're doing the stuff, right? We're doing the stuff. We go through the motions that, that indicate a righteous life. Because we know, if you've been, you don't have to be around church very long to pick up, this is what, this is what the holy ones look like. This is what a righteous life looks like. You can pick that up. This is what shows commitment to God. And we can convince ourselves and we can convince others that we are truly knowing God. But that's, that's actually what's happening. These motions that we do. Because we know it indicates knowing God, so it must be the case that if we do that, then we do know him. We can gain a reputation for being alive with the love and goodness of God. It's not actually that hard. <laughs> if you were to set out for yourself a goal, I, I, could, I, could I make the goal of convincing all these people that I'm incredibly holy, that I'm growing in holiness? You could do it. You could succeed at that. Jesus reminds Sardis, he cannot be deceived. Jesus cannot be deceived. The matter in question is whether his spirit is there or not. And he certainly knows that. So when he tells them, you are dead, what he must mean is that contrary to appearances, they lack what makes spirit, spiritually alive. They lack the thing that makes someone spiritually alive, which is the spirit of God, the unique love of God. I, I hadn't intended when I came to this passage to dovetail closely with yesterday's talk, but I find there's a lot of overlap. Here it is. They must have had, in this church of Sardis, they must have had a significant presence of the natural loves. They must have had eros, a parent. They must have had familial love. They had affection for each other. They must have had friendship. They must have, there's a, there is a, a, another love. It's not in Lewis's book, nomos, which is like the willingness to submit um, out of reverence. They must have had those things. But they didn't much want Jesus. <laughs> Without having those natural loves, there is no apparent. Uh, they could not have appeared or had a reputation for being alive. Because it did feel good to be part of this group. That's what we get between the lines. It felt good to be part of this group. But they didn't much want Jesus. Jesus. Just the Lord God as he is, 
for his own sake, wanting him for who he is. Throughout the New Testament, dead, when we read spiritually dead, dead means not having the agape love of God. That love that comes only by the presence of the king. It, it's, not part of, it's not part of human makeup. The Greeks even recognize this. Agape for them was divine love. It's a love that uh, it exists in the gods. It, it's, and the Christians, the, the message was that God brings that love into people. It was a marvel. The king, the presence of the king himself brings a person uh, life, brings a dead person to life. And that's being spiritually alive. So let me say that I heard... I heard that message six years ago. I heard that, and I brought it back to the Lord. What did I hear? I hear, I heard, there's a deadness. There's a lack of love. There's the appearance of love. There's the appearance of liveliness, but a lack. I brought it back to the Lord, uh, again, uh, fully assured of his comfort, fully assured that he was speaking for our good. But as I brought it, I grieved for Lent. Uh, I grieved. Most of the time, I couldn't put it into words. Uh, it's just a Sorrow. It was Lent, so my sermons at the time fit. You, you wouldn't have known I was feeling these things. But through that Lent, I kept offering this grief to the Lord, um, asking for cleansing, asking for healing, asking for life. And he finally brought my attention to what he was saying to Sardis. And I, I think this was the message for that moment for us as well, for me. He said to Sardis, wake up. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Or become alert. Cause to be strengthened what remains. Now, this was Jesus saying it, right? This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, wake up. And the Lord helped me to see something about that command. When the creator commands, wake up, it happens. Right? When the creator says, wake up, things actually wake up. When the creator said to the void, let there be light, there was light. When Jesus says to Lazarus in the grave, Lazarus, wake up, come out. It affects what he says. When Jesus says to the daughter of Jairus, Talitha, kum, little girl, wake up. She wakes. When he says wake up, it happens. So 
When Jesus says to Sardis, wake up and strengthen, the, the real, it's a, if you worked it out grammatically, it would be cause to be strengthened. Wake up and cause to be strengthened or let the effect of strengthening happen and of what remains and is ready to die. He is bringing about what he commands. That's marvelous. Again, it goes right back to the fact that he sends them a letter communicates his commitment to them. He says, wake up, because he's waking them up. Wow. That's grace. And that is exactly what I came to and what I felt six years ago as I came to Easter and with this full assurance that the Lord was effecting Awakening. I came to this wonderful realization. It, it was God's intention to bring our church to wakefulness, alertness. And it's his own word that makes that happen. It's his own word that brings to life. Uh, there was never a time, there was never a moment that I could cause that to happen. Well, that was very relieving. It's his own word that strengthens what remains. Has it happened? I don't know. <laughs> I think so. I trust so. But I am sure of God's regard for us. That's what I came to. Like Sardis, we have a part to play. When the Lord, when the king orders, we have a part. When the Lord speaks command, he gives the power to effect it, for sure. But as we see in verses 3 to 4, the individual will of each person has bearing. This is a corporate message that he gives to Sardis. It gets worked out individually. He tells the minister, through in the congregation, remember then. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it. Hold fast. Keep it. And repent. If you will not wake up. I'm waking this church. But if you, because it moves to the singular. These, each of these yous here is a singular. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. So remember, recall, hold fast what you received and heard. The gospel. Hold fast to the gospel. Another way of saying the gospel is Jesus' word to someone dead in sin. Awake. Hold fast to that. Remember, Jesus says, I, I, I've spoken my life-giving word to you. Remember that. I've called you into the kingdom. I've spoken my life-giving word to you. And he has said, he has said, I love you. I love you. My child, I love you. You receive that. If you receive that, you've come alive. I've received the love of God. That word brings life in us. And so Jesus says, hold it. 
Keep it. Hold fast to my word of love to you. But you may choose deadness. You are permitted to choose deadness. You may yet, though he has spoken, you may yet refuse to accept God's word that says, let me change you. Let me change you. Let me heal your life. Let me turn you into the fully alive person I made you to be. You may yet listen to some other voice that says, I'm not worthy of that. Some voice that says, you can never be fully alive. God could never love you. So his command has come, wake up. It will wake up the church. But individually, you may choose not to respond. And there will come a time, he promises, Sardis and us, when the storm comes and takes those dead branches off. As we see storms do, unlooked for. Like a thief is unexpected. The thief metaphor. A moment will arise when Jesus is suddenly very present. Suddenly there. And the one who doesn't want him there, the one who said no when he spoke life, that one will turn away. We can get confused about this. The judgment of Jesus always cuts both ways. But it's really only one thing. It, it is the powerful presence of the king. That's what he's talking about here. The judgment of Jesus is it's just his powerful presence. So whenever King Jesus... In the flesh, as he walked about Galilee and Judea, whenever he, he came and he asserted his authority, it cut both ways. Those who loved him were filled with praise. They honored him. They, were, they delighted in his judgments. They, they loved him. Those who rejected him were filled with loathing and hate. Because life responds to life, darkness runs to darkness. So when the king comes, it, it's just one thing. It's just him present. But it looks like two different things. John recorded, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, wants what is true, holds to what is true, comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And that is the same judgment that Jesus describes in Sardis. He will come. He will come after he has spoken this awakening word and the separation will happen. Jesus concludes his message to Sardis with two images that, that recur throughout Revelation, the, the rest of the book. Uh, 
The white robe and the book of life. Verses 4 to 5. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He's assuring them. He's assuring them. They're, they didn't receive commendation, and yet he assures them. When that judgment comes, when he visits in power and presence, I will find a people awake. That would be comforting, right? He's saying, when I come, you will be a people awake. There are those among you who are part of this kingdom. There are names written in the book of life that cannot be blotted out. Nowhere in scripture is there a suggestion that a name that is written in the book of life can be unwritten from that book. An adopted child is truly adopted. Can't be undone. The faithful Lord Jesus, he will own, he will acknowledge each and every one of his children. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So Jesus concludes here with one more gesture, uh, one more gesture towards appearance versus reality. Going through the churchly motions, doing the stuff that Christians do, isn't what the kingdom of God is. Doing the stuff isn't what the kingdom of God is. This is not about behavior. May we, may we truly, clearly get that. This isn't about behavior. You're being part of this church. You're being part of the church, the kingdom. is not about whether you are nice. It's not about going through those motions. It's about whether you have responded to God's word of love. And so the question is, have you surrendered to him? Have you surrendered to his love? He speaks welcome to you. He speaks forgiveness to you. On the condition that you surrender to it. Let him be king. Let the king bring the love of the king to you. Have you surrendered? That is the question. Not whether you look like a good Christian. Lord, thank you for speaking the word awake to us. Uh, we receive it as your favor. Thank you that you're kind enough to continue to use your word to speak to us as a people, to speak to us as 
individuals, men, women, and children. Lord, I, I ask that you'd keep doing it. Keep speaking with effect so that the thing you say brings about what you say. Let it be done here. Let it be done in me. Let it be done in us. For your glory and honor's sake, in Jesus' name.